Good morning, everyone. It is lovely to see you on a day when staying home is a great temptation, but you're here and that's a wonderful encouragement to us all. Today is part three of our series on conflict and forgiveness, and I was going to give a little recap of the series, but Helen has done that for us, thanks to her binge-watching of previous sermons from when she was on holidays. I'm impressed by the binge-watching, Helen. Today's part three of our series, and we're going to be talking about conflict conversations. Uh, In the previous talk in this series, two weeks ago, Lee pointed out to us that one of the biblical options we have when someone has offended or hurt us is to let it go. That's a biblical option. Because there are situations where something is annoying, but it's not wrong. Or there are situations where the wrongdoing was minor, it was accidental, it was isolated, and the best strategy is just to overlook it and to bear with the other person. But not every situation is like that, is it? And so today we're going to look at times when an issue needs to be addressed. Oh, that's the recap. Hang on, we'll go through the recap. Today we're going to consider conflict conversations. When they are called for, why they are so important, and how to manage them well. Now, personalities are different, and in this room, some of you are thinking, great, let's get into it. And others are thinking, perhaps we could put this off to another day. The uh, famous writer on Christian conflict, Ken Sandy, says, talking to other people about conflict is usually an unpleasant experience. I found it very refreshing to read that sentence in his book. But we need to remember that conflict is an opportunity. When you have a conflict conversation with someone and you handle it well, it can be a moment when God does amazing things. Okay, so the first question is when? What are the circumstances where overlook is not the right strategy and a conflict conversation is called for? Ken Sandy offers some helpful diagnostic questions. Firstly, is God being dishonoured? Sometimes a Christian's bad behaviour affects God's reputation in the world, especially if it's ongoing, especially if it's widely seen. Secondly, are other people being impacted? This might be the case with bullying or harsh speech in general. It might be risky behaviour that's putting other people in danger. It might be gossip or behaviour that's creating divisions in a church community. It might be a person with influence who is leading others astray. Are other people being impacted? Thirdly, is it hurting the offender? Conflict is an opportunity to love and serve others, including the person who's offended or hurt you might be that whatever's going on is harming the other person and the loving thing to do for them is to raise it rather than overlook. Fourthly, is your relationship with the person suffering? Now, this one's a bit subjective. Some things you yourself are able to let go of and move on, but other things can get in the way of you relating with this person. It might be a minor thing, but a minor thing that keeps on happening. That can be a sign that a conversation is needed. 
Now, we'll come back to the details of how and in what form these conversations should happen, and different situations will call for different approaches. But before we get into practicalities, I want us to have a look at why these conversations matter so much. In Luke 17, Jesus says, Watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. If a brother or sister has hurt you, Jesus has a command for you. Did you hear the command? The command is not just forgive. The command is rebuke them. Now that word rebuke sounds strong, doesn't it? And it does refer to stern words of disapproval. But we should pause before we assume this means a word of judgment, a word of condemnation, a bit of finger wagging to put other people down. Because in Matthew 18, Jesus has other things to say. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Another way to translate it is, you have gained your brother. The ambition of these strong words is to bring reconciliation, not condemnation. To rebuild a relationship rather than to win points. Jesus calls on both people in a conflict to start this conversation. Matthew 5, he says, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. It's not if you remember that you have something against someone else, but if someone else has something against you, Jesus says go and deal with it. So I could just say that conflict conversations are important because Jesus tells us to have them. That would be fair enough, but we can dig a bit deeper. We can see that Jesus perceives that often talking about an issue is the only way that true peace can be achieved. Jesus shows there are situations where repentance is necessary for the healing of a relationship. Jesus' goal for us is not just the absence of open fighting, but the presence of unity and true peace. When hurt people retreat to opposite corners of the church or shift to different congregations in different churches, Jesus' goal is not fulfilled. Because as we saw in week one, God's big project is to bring unity to all things under Christ. Often, talking about problems is a necessary step for that unity. Tim Keller points out, Christian forgiveness is never simply individualistic, concerned only with the inner healing of the heart. It is much more. God's concern is for the outer and social healing of the community as well. Forgiveness is never only about the inner peace of the victim. Conflict conversations are often necessary if we want to be truth-tellers. Today we read in Ephesians, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour For we are all members of one body. 
In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. If there's an issue between you and someone else, pretending that everything is okay is failing to tell them the truth. Lying to a Christian brother or sister like this is not much better than punching them. This passage recognises that anger will be an emotional reality. It doesn't say never get angry, but it says work through your anger. And very often the way that's done is by a frank conversation with the other person. And this is in fact part of loving other people. Hiding someone else's wrongdoing is no service to them. Failing to speak up about their harsh tongue or their selfish habits or their broken promises is denying them a chance to grow. It's a failure to love and serve the person who's hurt you. Here's a great quote from the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, nothing is so cruel as the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Tenderness can be cruel. Rebuke can be compassionate. So these are the reasons why, when the circumstances arise, these conversations are incredibly important. These reasons apply particularly forcefully to conflicts between Christians. But because we are ambassadors of reconciliation, this principle applies more broadly as well. We must not run away from conflict conversations. Running away is pretty tempting, isn't it? I've done it. Show of hands? No, it's not the show of hands. <laughs> Running away is tempting, even when we know a conflict conversation is the appropriate thing to do. I think sometimes we run away because we're more comfortable keeping someone at a distance as an enemy than we are doing the hard work of forgiveness and reconciliation. But other times we run away because we're scared it'll go badly and things will blow up. And that does happen. But there are things we can do to make it less likely. And for the rest of this talk, I want to have a look at the how of conflict conversations. In this section, I'm going to draw on some biblical truth and also on some secular wisdom. The thing about secular writers and bloggers and podcasters is you can't rely on them for the what and the why but they can be very useful when it comes to the how. It's Jesus who gives us the truth about who we really are and what we're here for. But secular wisdom can be a useful tool in understanding how people tick and how we can work towards the goals that Jesus gives us. Okay, how to handle conflict conversations well. I want to start by talking about preparation before you start a conversation. Proverbs 12 says, Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. 
And we read in Ephesians 4, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Preparation will help us avoid reckless words and help us to find words that will build people up and bring healing, even as we raise a troublesome topic. In the last talk, Lee helped us to think about self-examination. Is there a plank in my own eye that I need to deal with before I discuss the speck in my brother's eye? Preparation should also involve praying for the other person. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for them. God is the one with the true power to open minds and soften hearts. Preparation involves choosing a good time and place for the conversation. Conflict conversations really should be in person. I find this hard. And young people find this supremely hard. When I give this talk tonight, I'm going to dwell on this topic a bit longer. Emails and text messages are not the way to have a conflict conversation. If you really can't meet in person, a scheduled phone call is kind of second best. Um, face-to-face is the way to do it. If this is a conflict with a peer, then Jesus says in Matthew 18 that the conversation should start with just you and the other person. Now, let's just note here that not all conflicts are between peers. If there's a power difference and there's been a real abuse of power, you'll probably need a support person at least. In a serious case of abuse, it's not just an interpersonal conflict. There's a bigger issue that needs to be dealt with by the relevant authorities. But when it is an issue between peers, Jesus teaches us to discuss it with just the two of you. Don't take along an army of offsiders. Don't plan the conversation with when all the people on your side will be present. Because the goal is not to tear the other person down, but to win them over. And rebuild a relationship. A good time and place will be with you when there are not distractions, when you can both focus on the conversation. And so that means not with your spouse when there is a noisy preschooler in the room. It means you don't have a conversation with your teenager when he's just walked in the door after a tiring day at school. Can you tell what I've learned the hard way? And preparation means making a plan for the conversation. Possibly writing something down. Maybe even a full script for yourself. You probably don't want to read out the full script word for word in front of the other person. But beforehand, you can read your script and refine it. Work out how to make this a conversation that really is helpful for building others up. A secular model that I find helpful here is something called the Thomas Kilman Conflict Management Model. It's named after the two researchers who came up with it. Uh, In a discussion of conflict, I get a little nervous when I hear Thomas Kilman, but we're pressing on anyway. This model looks at two factors, two axes on this graph. On the vertical axis, we have assertiveness. Now, that's not just a nice way of saying pushiness or aggression. Assertiveness means how much you're clear and committed to putting across your own position on this issue. The horizontal axis is cooperativeness. 
how much you're interested in the other person's needs and position and agenda. On those two axes, the model identifies five conflict styles, and we're pretty familiar with the styles that are assertive but not cooperative, or styles which are cooperative but not assertive, being a pushover. But the really helpful thing this model shows is that you don't have to choose between assertiveness and cooperation. It's like the taco ad, why not have both? We can split the difference and compromise, that's like half a win for each of us, or we can get creative and try to collaborate and look for an outcome that is a win-win. I think this model is helpful for us getting our heads around the Bible passages that tell us to confront or rebuke a brother and sister in order to win them over. Confront means high assertiveness. That doesn't have to mean low cooperation. You can also have high cooperation, high consideration for the other person because our goal is to repair the relationship. Another secular insight I want to share comes from a really handy book called Crucial Conversations. It's particularly focused on the workplace, but its insights are useful all around. This book points out that what we feel and what we do is based not just on raw facts, what we see and hear, but also on our interpretation of those facts, the story we tell ourselves. Something happens, we see it or hear it, we then tell ourselves a story in our minds about what's happened here and that is what generates the feelings and the actions. Being able to separate those things in our minds and then to separate them in a conversation is really, really valuable. Here's an example from the book that I quite liked. It's about a worker called Brian who is speaking to his supervisor called Fernando. In version one of the conversation... Brian marches up to Fernando and says, I need to talk to you about your leadership style. You always micromanage me and it's driving me nuts. And that conversation doesn't go very well. (laughs) But here's version two of that conversation. Brian approaches Fernando and says, could I talk to you about something? Since I started work here, you've asked to meet with me twice a day. That's more than you meet with anyone else. You've also asked me to run all my ideas past you before I include them in a project. Now, so far, Brian has talked only about raw facts, just about what he has seen and heard. And Fernando, the boss, doesn't dispute those facts. He says, okay, what's your point? And so Brian continues, I'm not sure that you're intending to send this message, but I'm beginning to wonder if you don't trust me. Maybe you think I'm not up to the job or that I'll get you into trouble. Is that what's going on? Brian is now sharing the story that he's been telling himself about these facts, his interpretation of what's going on, but he's sharing it tentatively. He's putting it forward for comment. He ends with a question, is that what's going on? So Fernando can then respond, yeah, look, the last guy who worked for me, he was always getting near the end of a project and realising he'd left out a key element. I'm just trying to give you a chance to get my input at the right time. And from there, they're able to discuss what a better way of doing that might be. This technique for slowing things down, 
for separating facts from interpretations, inviting the other person to challenge your interpretation of events, it leads to a sense of safety in the conversation. It shows that you're wanting to solve an issue, not condemn the person. It's a way of working towards the goal of winning over your brother or sister. Okay, so there are a few points about preparing beforehand for a conflict conversation. But you can't prepare forever. And you can't prepare for everything. Let's think now about what happens when you find yourself in the middle of a conflict conversation. Maybe it's a conversation that you've started. Maybe it's a conversation that someone else has started with you. Maybe one of you has prepared carefully, or maybe not. How can we manage these situations with wisdom? More importantly, how can we work towards the goal that Jesus has for these kinds of conversations? We've looked previously at James chapter 1, which says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Quality listening is going to be a major step towards any conflict being resolved well. And we'll listen better when we remember that process that we saw earlier is going on for the person in front of you. The act of approaching you with a problem, excuse me, the act of approaching you was prompted by a feeling. That feeling was prompted by the story they've been telling themselves and that interpretation is built on what facts they've seen and heard. Good listening will mean acknowledging the feeling and trying to draw out and understand the story they've been telling and the events that it's based on. As you listen, it's valuable to look for points where you can express agreement. There's sure to be something. Maybe you can agree with some or all of their story. Maybe you disagree about the interpretation, but you can agree about the basic facts. If they've got the facts all jumbled, you can at least agree that their feeling would be justified if those facts were true. There's always something you can agree about to get the ball rolling. And as you work through all this, it's highly likely you'll come across something that you should apologise for. Occasionally, there is nothing at all that can happen that it's 100% someone else's fault and 0% you. But often, once you've worked through the details, you discover, okay, 5% was my fault. Sometimes that's right. And the way to honour God in this situation is to apologise for the 5%, even if it's only 5. And if it's 95%, apologise for the 95%. What does a good apology look like? I think a good apology does four things. It does these four things out loud, okay? It takes ownership. I did the thing. It recognises impact. The thing hurt you. It admits fault, I should not have done the thing. And it asks forgiveness, I'm sorry. When we listen well, when we look for points of agreement, when we apologise for the part we've played, we're vastly improving the chances of a conversation leading to the resolution of the conflict. 
but it doesn't succeed every time. At least not straight away. Sometimes conflict conversations need to be paused. There's no shame in saying, I hear what you're saying. I need to go away and think about it. Can we talk again another day? And sometimes conflict conversations need help. In that passage from Matthew 18, we heard Jesus laying out an escalation process. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along. It might be that both people involved in the conflict agree to get some others involved to work this thing out. Maybe it's a trusted Christian friend, ideally one with some peacemaker training. Maybe it's a minister, maybe it's a marriage counsellor, maybe it's a legal mediator. But sometimes the other person won't agree to that and you need to get someone else involved on your own. But the goal here is the same, to get the other person to listen to you so that you've won them over and the relationship is repaired. You're not bringing in an enforcer to help you win, you're bringing in a mediator to help you and the other person work this through. Sometimes the involvement of a mediator doesn't work. And if the matter is serious enough, there's a need to escalate it to some authority structure. In Matthew 18, Jesus is speaking about a conflict between two church members. And the next step he mentions is tell it to the church. Let me say he's not talking about gossip. Go and talk to the person next to you about it every time. No, he's, I think he's really talking about bringing it to the church leadership who can bring church discipline to bear if necessary, but with the same goal of reconciliation. In other situations, there might be a need to bring it to some other authority, the HR department, the legal system. But in doing so, the goal is not revenge. The goal is for the other person to listen so the conflict can be resolved. Now, all this could be hard work, right? Your faces are all saying, this sounds like hard work. And no one said that conflict conversations were easy. But you know what the ultimate tool for conflict conversations is? The ultimate tool is not a persuasive technique or a psychological insight. The ultimate tool is remembering the gospel. Hearing the gospel and what it says to us about who we are. Listen to this gospel summary in Titus chapter 3. When the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. When we listen to the gospel, we're reminded that a conflict conversation is not between a good person and a bad person. It's always between two sinners. Christian believers or not, none of us are righteous in all we do. All of us have fallen short. And when I really take that on board, it's going to make me humble in my approach to conflict conversations. 
Humble in the way I raise a complaint. Humble in the way I receive a complaint. But when we listen to the gospel, it also wonderfully assures us. Through faith in Jesus, we are justified by his grace and made God's heirs. That is, we are adopted into God's family as his precious sons and daughters. If our trust is in King Jesus, then God's declaration over us is accepted, loved, included, secure. That's what God declares over you if you're a follower of Jesus. The security which the gospel brings us frees us to be courageous in a conflict conversation. In a worst case scenario, the other person might reject me, hate me, exclude me, attack me. And that will sting on the surface. But it can't shake the core of who I am. Because my acceptance and my security and my value don't come from what this other person says about me, but about what God says about me. The more I get that, the freer I am to be courageous in discussing thorny issues from that place of security. Now, I've been a Christian for 26 years, and I have to keep reminding myself of these things again and again. I like to think that they are gradually, gradually sinking in deeper, but it's an ongoing work. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to see that you have a power source for quality conflict conversations that nobody else has. Even if they've read all the good evidence-based strategies and psychological wisdom, you have the gospel which simultaneously brings you down and makes you humble and lifts you up and makes you secure. Conflict conversations are important. It's important not to run away. It's important to handle them well. Let's lean on what Jesus has given us as we serve as ambassadors of reconciliation.